Mitz. Today's show talking politics with HuffPost journalist Paul Blumenthal. Paul, good to have you back on the program. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you back. Happy holidays to you. Let's jump right in. Uh, the news uh, breaking as we come on the air right now uh, is that the Israel-Hamas truce has been extended by two days, uh, according to Qatar. Um, uh, so um, this thing, uh, this truce, that is, uh, this ceasefire, will extend at least for a couple more days. And I, I, I must admit, I'm ambivalent about this because on the one hand, uh, I'm delighted. Who, who who couldn't be? Why would you not be delighted about the fact that uh, there's a ceasefire, at least temporarily, a truce uh, that allows for these hostages to be swapped? Uh, that means, at least in the interim, there are no, uh, 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 the, the, the count of dead bodies is not continuing to rise, uh, at least temporarily. And yet we all know what's going to happen on the other side, at least we think we know what's going to happen um, when um, these uh, truces finally uh, run out, when the ceasefire is finally lifted. Uh, the bombs start dropping once again. So I'm the first to admit I'm ambivalent about this, and yet I celebrate these hostages being released uh, and the truce at the moment. That's my read. But again, Qatar now says that they've negotiated um, an arrangement for this truce to extend by another two days. That's my read, Paul Blumenthal. What's your read on this? Yeah, I mean, any ceasefire, if you're looking to, to stop the body count from rising, I mean, I, I believe we've already had 4,000 children killed in Gaza uh, since this war began. Um, you know, the Biden administration has been working to negotiate uh, on these ceasefires, working with all of the parties involved in the Arab region, Israel and Hamas. And uh, I believe that the expectation or the desire is to continue this ceasefire as long as, as possible and hopefully lock, lock it in permanently. I mean, there are still hostages being held, uh, you know, both by Hamas taken from the October 7th attack and, you know, Palestinian children and women being held uh, in, in prison basically on no charges in the West Bank um, that could be exchanged. So this could be extended for quite some time, uh, I, I mean, I, I agree with your ambivalence about, uh, you know, what what would happen, um, you know, if the, there are no more hostages to be exchanged. The Israeli government would probably want to resume uh, bombing, not only, you know, in retaliation for the October 7th attack, but, but also because, uh, you know, Netanyahu is greatly endangered. He's, you know, blamed almost entirely by the Israeli public for that attack. And they would like his government to collapse and for him to stay in power probably means continuing the war. Mm. You raised two points there that are worth interrogating. One um, is the latter point you just raised, which I'll get to when we come forward here. And that is the politics of war. We oftentimes don't um, want to address that issue. Um, but the politics of war are, are tricky. Uh, to your latter point, um, that Bibi Netanyahu uh, in some ways is benefited. Let's call it what it is is benefited politically by continuing his effort to crush and destroy Hamas, given what you said earlier, that he has been, you know, almost singularly blamed for this attack happening on October 7th in the first place. So to uh, to see his government uh, not get uh, pushed out, um, the politics on this would suggest, to your point, which I think is spot on, that he might benefit uh, by this war continuing. That's the first thing we'll get to, the politics of this. Um, and, and that's, that's again, it's, it's tricky terrain, but we'll, we'll navigate our way through it. The second point you raised um, in that phrase you offered, that the ceasefire might be uh, locked in permanently. I don't see that happening. Uh, I personally don't see how this ceasefire 
gets locked in per uh, permanently, in part because of the point I just raised <laughs> about your issue uh, relative to the politics. So it, there's a lot more to discuss about that. There's a great deal more news um, uh, to get to political news in, in this in this first hour. President Biden, we are told, has decided to skip uh, the International Climate Summit. That's a little tricky, given what's happening with our climate right about now that he's not even going to the summit. I don't know what kind of message that sends. Religious leaders are calling uh, on Congress to fund Israel even more so. Um, so now the political right has stepped up and they've demanded more money for Israel. So they they've got Israel's back if nobody else uh, doesn't. Uh, and um, uh, Biden, some some new data, more polls that keep showing he is in trouble against Donald Trump. These new polls out today about Biden's troubles with young people. No surprise there. And yet it's scary. We'll talk more about it when we come forward with Paul Blumenthal on Tavis Smile. For all the freedom loving folk. This is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Our guest is Peter Blue, uh, Paul Blumenthal, uh, who is uh, the HuffPost journalist. Um, and uh, we're pleased to have Paul back on our on our program. Um, Paul, we were talking a moment ago about two things I want to come right back to quickly here. Um, one is um, the politics of this. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in and not heard your point about Bibi Netanyahu, he is, um, to your point, largely being held responsible for this surprise attack that happened on October 7th. Israelis are not happy with Bibi Netanyahu uh, and uh, their prime minister. And um, his his government is, uh, to your point, in some trouble. But the, the, the very notion um, that this ceasefire might not be extended, might not be locked in permanently, although I think there's a little, little hope of that to begin with. We'll come back to that in a moment, as I said. Uh, the fact that it might not be locked in over politics, though, is a little little scary, a little tricky, and a little disheartening. Um, unpack that for me as you see it. Yeah, well, I mean, if we, uh, you know, go back a few years, you know, b before this attack took place, Netanyahu was is has been uh, fighting sort of an internal domestic political battle mm -hmm. for his own survival, where he's been leading the government despite facing uh, significant corruption charges against himself and his wife. Uh, and to avoid those charges, he's been pushing legislation to essentially destroy the uh, checks and balances of the court system in Israel, Israeli society. And he's done this with the backing of extreme, extreme far right, further right than anything we really have in the mainstream of American politics, parties in the West Bank among the settlers groups who have joined his government and these people have protected him from this corruption inquiry, have supported, uh, you know, gutting the court system in Israel. And, uh, you know, their view, their ideology is the complete ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, and they have significant influence in this administration. So there's strong uh, political and ideological reasons why Netanyahu would want to continue the war. Uh, to help his far-right benefactors and to keep himself out of prison. Mm. And, 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 and how should American citizens read that? Um, we, we see, uh, we'll get to this a little bit later as well, we see these religious leaders now calling on Congress um, to uh, send more money to Israel. Uh, we see President Biden essentially giving Israel a blank check. We see President Biden, Anthony Blinken, and the entire Biden administration not wanting to use the words ceasefire, even as we are... Uh, in this uh, this pause uh, at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, this truce, we see the administration still not wanting to use the phrase ceasefire, still not wanting to use the phrase de-escalation. But nobody ever seems to link those realities to the politics 
that you just laid out. There's no question that war is always politics. Politics is war. Um, but at the end of the day, mm-hmm. nobody really wants to focus on that part. And that is a dangerous part that we could see the extension of this war, more lives being lost because politically it benefits one particular party in Israel. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, unfortunately often the case with wars is that they can provide a political benefit for, you mm-hmm. know, one particular actor. Um, I mean, Hamas has, uh, you know, gets political benefit from this war as well, because, uh, you know, Israel has characteristically overreacted to the attack and is killing, you know, what, 10, 20,000 civilians, most of whom are women and children in Gaza, and sort of losing any kind of uh, sense of support and goodwill that they had after the attack on October 7th. So, and, and, you know, this kind of death in Gaza solidifies Hamas as a, as a, as a political entity there as well. Um, so, I mean, there, there are lots of ways that politics play into this. I, I think that a lot of it is politics and also the ideology of, uh, you know, a lot of these far-right members of the Israeli cabinet that, you know, want to eliminate Palestinians from Israeli society, from the occupied territories. No, I'm, I'm glad you raised that issue because, again, my, my point is the way this conversation always gets framed. It always gets framed uh, essentially as Hamas attacked, unprovoked, uh, unprovoked Hamas attacked Israel. Israel has a right to defend itself. And so the thing gets this whole frame is Israel defending itself. And I, I, I have no qualms with that per se, except that something is wrong when that frame gets di- divorced or disconnected from the other frame of how people are benefited politically by this war being extended. And and that's the conversation that we seem not to want to have uh, in Western and mainstream media, which is one of the reasons why I always encourage uh, folk, you, have, you, can't, you can't be a single source uh, citizen. You cannot be a single source citizen. You have to read, read a variety of sources, sources <clears throat> excuse me, and they can't all be U.S. media. You have to, and, and now the access to that media is so easy by going online, but you have to read a variety of sources to understand the 360 view uh, of these issues that we find ourselves trying to navigate uh, in the world today. But that conversation, once again, about the politics and how BB and, and his ilk are benefited by this war uh, continuing um, doesn't often get discussed. So I'm glad, again, you raised that particular issue, which leads me to the other point you raised, which, again, for me, underscores why it is so difficult to imagine the possibility of this even happening. And that is that the, the ceasefire could be locked in permanently. Now, I know there are many people listening. Uh, there are those watching this who, in fact, hope that every time we see an extension of the ceasefire, uh, that it might be locked in permanently. So I just broke the news uh, moments ago Well, I commented on breaking news. I didn't break it, <laughs> but we commented on the breaking news that Qatar has announced that the ceasefire will extend for another two days. So every time there's good news um, about the ceasefire being extended a little bit longer, people think maybe there's hope it'll be locked in permanently. I don't see it, Paul, given in part the conversation that we just had. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's it's hard to see from the perspective of the Israeli government. I don't know what the Biden administration is telling uh, you know, the Israeli government behind the scenes. I think one of the dynamics that we've seen in this is that, or we, we've heard be reported out, is that the administration has criticized the Israeli government for essentially having no plan, no war plan, no plan for after the war, uh, no goals aside from the destruction of Hamas or as other members of the 
Netanyahu administration have called for is the total ethnic cleansing of all Palestinians from Gaza and pushing them all into Egypt. Um, so, I mean, I, I do believe that the American government believes that uh, there is no uh, military plan here for the, that the Israeli government has put forward to accomplish its goals. And as we've seen from the fighting so far, they've mostly been killing civilians, um, which, which you know wouldn't reach their goal of defeating Hamas. And if we look back at Israel's previous wars, whether it's in Gaza or Lebanon or elsewhere in the region, uh, they have often just uh, led to mass civilian casualties and have failed to achieve any military goals, whether that's defeating Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas in previous, you know, there have been a, a number of recent wars in Gaza. Um, so, I mean, you have to question whether they can even win this war. And it's who knows if they realize that in this time that they're given during the pause. To your point about uh, the Biden administration and not knowing exactly what they're doing and what they're saying behind the scenes on the Israel-Hamas conflict, we do know uh, that the Biden administration has announced that the president will not attend this year's Global Climate Summit. Uh, That summit this year is meeting in Dubai. Uh, and he uh, has announced he's not going to attend. Um, no official reason as yet uh, why he's not attending, but um, the scuttlebutt is that um, um, you know, what they're putting out uh, sort of uh, quietly is that he's, he's occupied, preoccupied with the Israel-Hamas war uh, and doesn't have time to attend this, uh, this global climate summit. Well, my view is that presidents have to do you know 18 different things at once. And I'm just curious at a moment like this as to how you read uh, all that's going on uh, with our climate, all that's going on with uh, global warming and climate change, et cetera, et cetera, that the president of the United States has said he will not attend the summit. I'm not sure that sends the right message, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the reporting that I have seen is that he is, you know, that they're putting out that he's, he's you know, consumed by the Israel-Palestine mm-hmm. conflict and is involved in that. Um, they're, you know, they're sending the special climate envoy, John Kerry, and other members of the administration to be there. Um, perhaps they're not seeing much come out of this year's conference. Uh, you know, the, these conferences don't always result in huge goals. Mm-hmm. Um, he attended the, the previous two that I'm aware of uh, during his administration, including in 2021, where he apologized for Donald Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Um so I don't I don't know if there's too much to really read into it at this time. Mm-hmm. Well, I won't read too much into it then. Uh, my, my, my question was whether I sent the wrong signal. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, but um, it is news. And so I wanted to, uh, to, to, to take your uh, take your temperature on it. I probably should. I probably did this out of order, which is not my way. But I, I, I put it on the dock of things we want to talk about. I probably should have went straight to it as we were talking about the Israel Hamas conflict, the war there. But uh, there is news today that um, um, a group, a significant group of religious leaders are calling upon Congress to fund Israel. As you know, uh, when Mike Johnson became speaker, he separated these things out. Uh, prior to his becoming speaker, uh, Joe Biden, speaking of the president, uh, wanted Ukraine and asked for Ukraine and Israel funding simultaneously. Speaker Johnson separated those things out. And now they're mm-hmm. all, they're, there's a growing uh, list of religious leaders who are demanding, calling on uh, Congress uh, to fund Israel. Your thoughts about that news today? Um, I mean, I guess my my thoughts on that might depend on who the religious leaders are. Um, uh, You know, if if we're talking people from, you know, people like Mike Johnson of the 
right-wing Christian variety, um, you know, support for Israel dovetails with their belief in, uh, you know, the end times apocalypse that will come uh, from a great conflict in Israel. Uh, so, I mean, I, that could be the case there. Jewish leaders, uh, religious leaders, obviously, ha- are strongly supportive of Israel and would support, you know, ha- have supported and been pushing for uh, an aid package. Um, it's interesting to see these religious uh, leaders out there pushing this. I mean, I, I know I've seen um, the Pope, uh, put, you know, saying that, you know, as, as usual, that, that war is not the uh, correct Mm-hmm. direction to go in here um as you you might you might think more religious leaders would think that way um but at the the same time uh i, I mean it, it's it's curious the the push for arms for israel especially at this time when we're in a ceasefire and and hoping that it it continues um especially for a country that doesn't necessarily need military aid yeah, the message seems to be a little off in terms of its timing um here you are uh, in a in a in a, in a um a pause, at least a truce, uh, if not a ceasefire momentarily. Uh, and these leaders are demanding more aid, more money for Israel to purchase more weapons. Uh, to your to your point, let me color it a bit more or explain it a bit better. The letter was led by the conservative. You want to know who these leaders are. The letter was uh, led by the conservative Faith and Freedom Coalition. So you're spot on with signees, including mm-hmm. pastors from Christian churches and leaders from organizations such as uh, the, uh, Dr. James Dobson, uh, the Family Institute there, the American Center for mm-hmm. Law and Justice, Outreach International, and, of course, the Christian Broadcasting Network founded by uh, Pat Robertson back in the day. So it's the typical, the typical Christian conservatives yeah. uh, who are demanding more money for Israel. So to your point, no no surprise there. Um, that said, I think the timing of the message might be uh, might be a bit off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching my clock here. Let me let me let me uh, commence this conversation. We'll continue when we come forward. Um, but there are <clears throat> these polls. Let me let me just ask a broad question first, then I'll get specifically to the polls that are out today about Biden and young voters. So we'll hold that and get to that mm. in about 90 seconds here. Um, but just broadly speaking, how are you reading, Paul, all of these polls? And they seem to be coming out every week. Every week there's some new poll that comes out um, that suggests that Joe Biden is in trouble, that whether in battleground states or beyond, if the race were held today, he would lose to Donald Trump. Again, I don't want to put too much in these polls, you know, a year out from Election Day. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. there is a pattern with these polls that is undeniable. And the White House has to be taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to read it any other way. Uh, you know, yeah, we are in a year out from the election. So you put as much stock in it as you want mm-hmm. at that. But at this at this very moment, it seems, according to the polls, that Joe Biden is down to Donald Trump in the mm-hmm. polls. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, um, determine exactly why I think that there's a lot of dissatisfaction, continued dissatisfaction with inflation, even though it's come down quite a bit, but prices are still, you know, higher than they were in 2019 or 2020. And people remain upset about that. And they seem to be blaming Joe Biden, um, Donald Trump also has, you know, not been appearing at the Republican primary debates. He sort of hasn't been in the news too much, uh, you know, even despite all of his trials. But he isn't on television as much as he was when he was president or running in 2016 or 2020. Um, And so I think people are less exposed to uh, what he actually stands for. 
And I, I would read these polls mostly as a dissatisfaction with yeah. uh, President Biden <clears throat> than any kind of support for Donald Trump. When we come forward, we'll unpack these polls specifically out today uh, about Biden and young voters. And um, to your point about Donald Trump, Nikki Haley seems to be, uh, I wouldn't call it catching fire, but she is starting, it appears, if you follow the mainstream media, to pull away from the pack. Everywhere I've looked over the last few days during this Thanksgiving break, there are more and more stories about Nikki Haley. And so it appears uh, that she's, uh, you know, she and DeSantis are still there, but she's starting to pull away slightly from this pack. If you read the mainstream media, uh, more to, uh, to talk about in this hour as we uh, do politics with Paul Blumenthal of HuffPost. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Sounds different, huh? This, this is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in conversation with Paul Blumenthal, uh, who was a HuffPost journalist. We've been talking, as we typically do in this first hour, about uh, politics, particularly coming off the holiday season. Uh, some breaking news we wanted to get to uh, at the start of uh, today's program. i got a great show lined up uh, for the next two and a half hours. Next two hours, I should say. Uh, but uh, we want to continue our conversation now with, uh, with Paul Blumenthal. So, Paul, I was saying moments ago that um, when these polls show a pattern, you have to take them seriously. We are once again a year out from Election Day. Um, there are a lot of folks who don't put too much stock in polls. You and I have been around long enough doing what we do to know that sometimes polls are wrong. And it could be that these polls are wrong. But again, there's a pattern here, uh, not just uh, with Trump uh, uh, v. Biden uh, and what the race would look like today were it held today. But these polls also are consistent uh, with regard to um, young voters. And the polls seem to indicate, uh, again, in a pattern that at best, at best, uh, Joe Biden is in a tight race with Donald Trump for young voters. That's the best story. The best news, the best story, the best spin is that it's a tight race for these young voters. Uh, And yet the sad part of that is, as you know, that Democrats usually carry young voters by double digits, young voters in part helped Joe Biden uh, to achieve victory uh, the, the, the last time around. Uh, certainly African-Americans, uh, black women uh, were responsible for, for rejuvenating his campaign. But there were a lot of young voters that ended up pushing Joe Biden across the finish line. Now we're told uh, that um, Biden and Trump are neck and neck when it comes to young voters. Neither one of these candidates, uh, assuming they are the presumptive nominees for their party, neither is a spring chicken. And yet, Um, Something has happened with young voters uh, being turned off by Joe Biden. One of those things, the polling tells us, Paul, that have turned them off is his handling of, you know what, the Israel-Hamas conflict. So here we are. Even we don't want to talk about it. Uh, We have to talk about it because obviously it's it's news. It's about life and death. And it's connected not just to politics in Israel that we discussed earlier, but connected to our politics at home as well. And so we are told in these polls that I keep reading that these young folk are turned off by a number of things, but uh, in part uh, and certainly at the moment by his handling or mishandling, as they see it, of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Take it anywhere you want to take it, Paul, but uh, Joe Biden's in trouble with young voters. Yeah, I mean, these polls, as, as you mentioned, they do show this pattern of, of young voters I mean, still supporting Joe Biden by a, a small amount, but that's way down from the 20-plus point margins that he won young voters by in 2020. And um, I think that there are a lot of different issues that have done this. And, and, you know, right now 
Israel-Palestine, maybe one of them young voters, appear to be, based on polls, uh, far more sympathetic to Palestinians than other generations. And so they see this issue in a very different way than uh, other generations of voters. Um, and, and, and that sort of complicates politically what, what Biden is doing here. Um, at the same time, you know, when we look at these polls, we should see them, as I said before, as a as a snapshot in time mm-hmm. that, you know, this could change. It could just show dissatisfaction at the moment. I think there's also a very large sense among not just young people, but but probably especially young people of dissatisfaction that the 2024 election will again be Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And there sort of hasn't been a coming to terms of that yet to People, one who's 81, the other is 77. I think people are looking for, you know, a new generation of politicians who more represents themselves, um, you know, than than people who uh, seem to be to, to these to younger voters, the, you know, the age of their grandparents. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that is one issue. I think another people another issue is, again, inflation, even though, you know, the economy by all metrics is doing well. People are still upset with rising prices. A lot of these young voters have never experienced such a thing before in their life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're first coming into, you know, the job market and, you know, having to pay for things and all of the prices going up, especially the continued high prices to uh, the interest rates being held high by the Federal Reserve that are causing high interest loan rates for cars, for homes. So, you know, it's sort of hard to get started on your life as a young person in that environment. Um, But, uh, you know, in in the next few months and as the election goes on, I think when people really tune in and when Donald Trump begins to dominate the headlines and all of his trials, which will dominate the entirety of the election season, uh, you know, I think that uh, younger people who tend to be more left leaning uh, than other generations, I can't really see them going ahead and backing Donald Trump. The question might be, will they sit out the election mm-hmm. or will they vote for an independent candidate like a Robert Kennedy Jr. or someone else? Clearly, there's an enthusiasm gap. There's absolutely no question about that. Um, let, me, let, me just, let me just swing out for a second. Um, enthusiasm gap, that is to say, for, for Joe Biden. Um, let me swing out here, though, Paul. The, the, the only thing I have seen so far, you cover this stuff more than I do or better than I do, certainly. Um, you do it every day. Um, the only thing I have seen that Joe Biden at the moment can hang his hat on that would pretty clearly result in an election victory for him is Donald Trump being convicted in one or more of these cases. Every poll I've seen, same stuff you're looking at, suggests there's a tight race mm-hmm. that Donald Trump would win where the election held today. And that's scary for many of us to be sure. And yet in these same polls, there's always this wiggle room. You always see the numbers starting to shift if and when Donald Trump is convicted. Now, it, it's, it's, sort mm-hmm. of, it's sort of funny and also scary to consider that your road to victory is the other, by, the other guy being convicted. Not that you were a better candidate, not that you ran, ran a better campaign, not that your message resonated mm-hmm. more with voters, not that, you did, not that you did a good job in your first term. But your hopes hang on whether or not this other guy is convicted. When we come forward, I, I want to ask you how you read that particular reality that Biden's best chance of being reelected at the moment, it would appear, based on the data, based on the polling, is Donald Trump being convicted? Um, how, 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 how about to read that? And I got a follow-up. Paul Blumenthal, I guess you're listening to Tavis Smiley. 
Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. When your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. All right, Paul Blumenthal of HuffPost, as I said a moment ago, the only thing I've seen so far um, that Joe Biden can hang his hat on with all the polling uh, that we see, uh, this pattern of polling, um, the numbers seem to suggest that if, in fact, Donald Trump is convicted in one or more of these cases, uh, his numbers, Trump's numbers then soften and Biden can see a little light at the end of the tunnel and perhaps a way to victory. But that's a strange way uh, to win an election, a strange way to be campaigning, hoping that the other guy gets convicted. Um, I mean, absolutely. We've never had anything like this uh, happen before in American history where, uh, you know, one of the candidates is facing four criminal trials in an election year. Um, I think, one of the issues that this does present, mm-hmm. uh, if if the you know, I, I mean, I, I personally think you know the polls today are a snapshot in time, and that the as the election goes on, sure. uh, they'll tighten. It'll be a cl- you know closer race. Maybe Biden will have an, an advantage. But you know, one of the issues is that these trials could take a long time, mm-hmm. and the only one that seems like it might actually resolve itself before the election is the one in held in D- Washington D.C. the federal case against Trump in the January sixth events. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, that seems to be the one that where we could reach a conviction because in Georgia, Fannie Willis, the uh, district attorney um, who's prosecuting Trump there for January 6th, uh, has set a, a trial date of August 5th, which is pretty close to the election. Mm-hmm. And that could drag on, drag on depending on the number of witnesses and challenges that happen uh, down there. In the documents case in Florida, the judge there is very supportive of Trump and has been pushing the deadline back as much as possible and helping him out in every way uh, that that can be done to, to push that um, from him reaching a conviction conviction there uh, before the election. Um, so, I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's really going to hang on that January 6th trial in D.C., mm-hmm. I think, um, whether a conviction happens. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's problematic to uh, to to, you know, rest your hopes that the opponent gets convicted of a crime. To if you want to win the election. Now, I mean, I do see other ways that this could go. Um, you know, the economy, the inflation could hit the rate that, you know, the Federal Reserve wants to see, and they could lower interest rates, which would allow a lot of people who bought during the inflation period to refinance their mortgages, save money. People might start feeling better about their economic situation and, you know, lend that support to Biden, and, and that could help turn things around for him as well. Two other things I want to cover when we come forward. Um, One is um, whether or not you can imagine any scenario. I know you are not Joe Biden. I am not Joe Biden. We can't get inside his head. But there will come a point, and some could argue, uh, some might argue, in fact, that we are already at that point where it's too late for him to to step aside. Uh, And yet David Axelrod, who I mentioned last week, uh, ran Obama's campaign quite effectively, uh, has said publicly that Joe Biden ought to step aside as a hero. He um, saved the democracy. He uh, rebounded the economy uh, to the extent that he could. Uh, he restored our integrity worldwide. He did what he was supposed to do in the aftermath of Donald Trump. Why not step aside and be regarded uh, forever in history as a hero who did what he needed to do and then had the courage and the the, the good sense to step aside uh, for a younger generation? Um, not a bad narrative. 
uh, as David Axelrod lays it out. And so he's encouraged Biden to consider stepping aside because this is not going to get any better. These polls are consistent. There's a pattern here. And there might be a little give and take, um, but um, Axelrod knows this stuff pretty well and has suggested that Joe Biden ought to step aside. There will come a point, Paul, as you know, where it will be too late to do that. So my question is this when we come forward. Is there anything in this polling that will continue that Joe Biden should look at and decide I really do need to step aside? And now is the time to do so. <clears throat> I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm just asking Paul Blumenthal whether or not he can imagine anything that Joe Biden might see in the data that would convince him to do uh, otherwise. Uh, and then we'll close with a quick thought about Nikki Haley. Again, over the last few days, everything I've read, and if you're reading the same stuff I'm reading, you're seeing it too. Uh, Nikki Haley seems to be uh, you know, pulling, pulling away from the pack uh, as the uh, Republican that folk are paying attention to, uh, of course, beyond Donald Trump. Those closing comments from Paul Blumenthal when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. good. Tavis Smiley Smiley. continues when we come forward. 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 Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. David Axelrod, Paul Blumenthal isn't the only one to uh, say that Biden ought to step aside. But when he said it, it got lots of attention, as you well know. My question is whether or not, uh, given the polling we've been discussing in this hour uh, on this side of the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, whether or not there's anything you think. Uh, again, we can't get inside Joe Biden's head, but what, what would it take? Let me, let, me, let me reframe the question. What would it take, you think, for him to be convinced that these numbers are so bad that he has to step aside? I mean, uh, you know, from what I see and, and, and you know, know from, from talking to people is that I, I, I think it's, it's too late uh, for him to step aside. He's not going to. I mm-hmm. think the only thing that would do that would be some kind of health scare. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I really don't see, uh, you know, the people in his orbit and his administration are, you know, in the party don't want him to step aside and I don't think he's going to, he has any desire or want to do that. I think the only thing that would do that would be some health situation that would sort of force him to, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's an incumbent president, uh, with all the powers of incumbency. Uh, and I don't think that the democratic party wants to sacrifice that for a unknown candidate, even though, you know, I mean, polls have shown for the past year or so that, um, you know, most Democratic primary voters would prefer a different candidate, but mm-hmm. they're not going to get it. <laughs> that's that, that's pretty blunt. <laughs> and yet and, and, and that in that one sentence, you sum up the conundrum that most of the polls, speaking of polls, most of the polls show that even Democrats want a different candidate. But as you heard Paul Blumenthal say they're not going to get it. And that is going to be what the postmortem is going to be about uh, if, in fact, Joe Biden loses this election. That will be the postmortem. Rest assured that for two years prior, all the polls indicated that Democrats wanted somebody else and the Democratic Party did not pay attention to that polling data. Uh, trust and believe, again, that will be the postmortem. We shall see. Let me Speaking of postmortem, let me close uh, this uh, hour uh, with this question, uh, and that is whether or not you're reading the Nikki Haley news in the same way that I am. It seems that she's starting to be the, the the candidate that everybody's talking about, aside from the obvious Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, she seems to be surging in the polls, uh, especially in states like New Hampshire and South Carolina, where she was the governor. Um, I don't know how much to read into that. Uh, you know, she's still trail. If she's in second place, she's she's still trailing Donald Trump by 30, 40 points. 
Um, you know, she's she's trying to crack 10 percent nationally, where D- well, Donald Trump is, you know, around 50 percent in the primary. So, mm-hmm. I mean, all these other candidates that have been appearing at the debates, it's it's a race for second place. Um, you know, Donald Trump is essentially running as an incumbent president in the primary. And it's it's hard to, to be yet, in this environment. And yet, uh, with a minute to go here, yet he has to pick somebody. Assuming that he is the presumptive nominee, he's got to pick somebody as a running mate. She was, of course, his, U- his U.N. ambassador. You know, all kinds of things mm-hmm. are said during the campaign that are not nice. And yet, at the end of the day, you got to pick somebody to run with. JFK did it for LBJ. Uh, uh, Biden, I mean, uh, Obama did it for Biden. It happens. They say nasty things about you. Mm-hmm. Kamala did it to Joe Biden, yet Joe Biden picked her anyway. Um, but if he were to pick Nikki Haley as a running mate, she's a woman. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that there has been a, an assumption that he would pick a woman uh, as his running mate for some time. I guess it could be Nikki Haley, unless he is too turned off by uh, her attacks on him. I mean, mm-hmm. this really just goes to his psychology, I think, more than anything. And, you know, whether he believes he has such a hold on the party that he yeah. can pick whomever he wants, whether it's, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or somebody of that yeah. ilk. It goes to his psychology, no question about it, but it also goes to the fact that he needs to win. As you and I both know and the audience knows mm-hmm. that to stave off prison, he may have to win this presidential election just to stave it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's going to pick, I think, uh, psychology notwithstanding, and we know he's a, he's a, he's, he is psychotic, <laughs> to be sure, but psychology notwithstanding, he's going to pick the person that gives him the best chance to win to stave off prison. I digress for now on that point. Paul, good to have you back on the program. Program, sir, all the best to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks thank, for having me. Thank you for your time. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.